Good, thank you. They're still coming in. While they're coming in, um, we'll announce this at the end of service again. Don't let me forget to announce this because there will be another, uh, what time is it, 10.02? Another 20% here to hear it. But Carol, um, here's the microphone. Let me see if this thing's on. Uh, tell us about what's going on this afternoon. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. First of all, we want to talk about yesterday. How many of you were at Pride? Wasn't it fabulous? It was a great, great day. Um, want to especially thank all of you who walked, all of you who staffed the booth today and possibly tomorrow. Or yesterday and possibly today. My days are really confused. Sorry about mm -hmm. that. And especially Linda O'Connell, where are you? Linda. Linda. Linda coordinated all the nuts and bolts of yesterday at Pride, and it was really wonderful. You know, getting people signed up and getting the stuff there and all those, uh, directing people to the booth when they get on, on the grounds and can't find it, just all those things. And we thank Linda so much. Let's give her one more hand. This is really... There she is. If any... If anybody doesn't know Linda, she's right back there. Wait everybody turn around and look at Linda. Yay. We're almost sold out of shirts. So that's a really good thing. People love the shirts. So that's yesterday. Thank you all. Today at 5 o'clock, we have a all-meal group joint picnic and it's going to be at Owl Creek Park, 9751 Concord Road, which is between um, Edmondson and Ed, um, Nolensville Road, closer to Nolensville Road, just to get your general bearings. And it's everybody bring your own food, chairs, blankets, games, whatever you want. We're just gonna relax, enjoy each other, have a lot of good fellowship, and enjoy this incredible weather today. So I hope you can all come. I also wanted to thank the two meal groups that kind of got the ball rolling on this event, and that's the Nolensville group and the um, Brunchwood group, who kind of got the ball rolling, and now we have this wonderful event for this afternoon for all of us. So thank you to them, and I look forward to seeing you all today. Great. Thank you, Carol. Big hand for Carol. She does a lot around here. All right, we're going to go ahead, and y'all are going to have to help me with this because people are still going to be coming in. Let's dismiss, do this a little different today, and dismiss the fourth and fifth graders and the junior hires. Before we do that, though, it just hit me. Uh, Weimer family, would y'all stand? These guys are headed out. Is this the last Sunday? Last Sunday, shoot. We don't like that, and yet... We're grateful for what's happening in y'all's lives. Y'all have been a big part of our life for a short time, but your family of 17 has been a big part, or however many it is, <laughs> has been a big part. I joked with them one time at church. I said, man, y'all got to drive like a 15-passenger van, and they were like, mm, we do. <laughs> so I think because they've been a big part and we love them so much, I want them now to sit down and all of us to stand up. And let's extend our hands to them in prayer. That God, who has been behind them, under them, through them, 
with them is also before them. May their house already be a home there in D.C. waiting on them. May jobs prosper, may friendships grow, and may they find a community of faith to do for them what this community has done for them and even more. There is no scarcity in this kingdom called the beloved community. We bless them now, speaking every good thing, every positive thought. We bless them now, knowing, God, that you are with them. We pray this in Christ's name. And everybody said a good and hearty, amen. Amen. Now, fourth and fifth graders and junior hires, you guys can head out so all the kids can go to class. I think senior hires staying with us. Do me a favor because there will be more kids coming in. If you see kids come in, somebody sits down with a junior hire or a fourth and fifth grader, let them know that we've already dismissed because this is a little bit different. Well, today is an important special day. It is a day of, it is a day of transition for all of us. Um, in the monastic world, a few hundred years ago, they began to make use of a term called liminal space. Liminal comes from the Latin liminus, which essentially, technically, means threshold. And so liminal space is that awkward and yet um, unavoidable and yet important space in all of our lives, that, that threshold space in our life between two worlds, between two things. And our church is standing on a threshold today. To some degree, I suppose every day and every space has a bit of threshold in it, right? Every day is a threshold. But there's no way to avoid the fact that some thresholds are bigger, broader, and more impactful than others. And this is one of those more than other times and spaces in the life of this church. We are in liminal space. We are in transition. And I have been asked by many of you, and I have been just simply guarding and holding and um, keeping my heart over the last few weeks. I suppose as I head into my 50s, I'm beginning to understand the words that my great-grandfather used to speak to me quite often, that wisdom is a lifetime of listening when you'd rather be talking. And I am learning to listen my way through a whole lot more these days than to talk my way through. But as I've been listening my way through these last few weeks and few months, uh, my heart has been filling up. And so today I've been asked to share my heart. And I will share it um, principally regarding uh, three very interrelated things. And that is our past, our present, and our future. I want to talk about from my perspective, not just for me personally and vocationally as it relates to this church, but for this church, I want to project backwards and I want to address the question of where we have been. I want us to look for a little bit uh, at our journey up to this point, how we have arrived at this, at this threshold. All the way, Fanny J. Crosby wrote the old hymn, All the way my Savior leads me. Savior like a shepherd lead us. He leadeth me. That'd be a good medley of three leading hymns, wouldn't it? And we have felt that here. 
And so we're going to look back at how we've gotten here. And then we're going to look to our present, and I'm going to do my best to express to you uh, technically, practically, theologically, where we are at this moment, relationally, where we are at this moment in time as a church, what this threshold actually looks like, how we honorably stand on this threshold, and how we do with this threshold, what thresholds are to have done to them, and that is pass across it. So we'll talk about where we are, and then we'll address the future, where we are going, who we are, and how I believe we're going to get there. At the end of each reflection, we're going to have a time of meditation, a time of personal reflection, and a time of prayer. And today we're going to do all of this intentionally omitting music. We're going to omit music for this one Sunday, and next Sunday we will reassume our tradition of music and singing together. But today, as I was here early reflecting, um, Melissa sent me Melissa sent me a text and she said, I am not there with you today, but I really, really hope things go well and I'll be watching. I sent her back and said that I was just thinking about her and I hope she would. And I told her that we would do this Sunday without music as an homage or a tip of the hat to the music that she has brought to our church and our hearts. So our silence today uh, musically, we hope will speak loads because we will learn to sing without her. But on this day, we just want to all turn around and look at the camera and say, we honor you. And let's do that right now. if she hadn't turned her computer on, she just ruined a really good moment. <laughs> Let's open our hearts with prayer for just a moment. Close our eyes. Put our feet on the ground as we've been taught and ground in to the earth as the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God, creator, ground of all being, We silence our hearts, we open the same, and sweet Christ, we invite thoughts not our own, healing, direction, wisdom, we pray all of this, in Christ's name. Amen. Where we have been, well, I won't get lost in the vortex of a 14-year-old story, but I do want to hit some of the highlights. 14 years ago, with seven of my friends and their families, we began 
a church called Grace Point. It would be cleaning up the story immensely and improperly to say we had a clear vision of what we wanted to be. We did not have a clear vision except that we wanted to be good to one another. I do remember often saying to one another we should in no way idealize and we did not want to be that next church that act like all the churches before Lee had done it wrong and we were going to get it right. We were at least far enough along to know that wasn't the case. But we did have a sense that there was a need in this Bible Belt community for a church, we didn't even use the word then, but a church of a progressive ilk. When my friends gathered around me and asked me to lead this congregation that we were going to start, I had a lot of trepidation. I had a lot of trepidation because I had been in ministry since I was 16. And again, you've heard me say many times, uh, ministry, pastoring is a complex thing that no 16-year-old or 21-year-old should be suggest, uh, subjected to. Um, Jesus didn't even start talking about stuff till he was 30. We should probably add another 10 or 20 years onto that for all the rest of us. But I've been preaching and, and I, being a kid preacher in that world, by the time I was 27, I was at Christ Church and I was preaching to three and 4,000 people a week. That's heady stuff for a 27-year-old kid. Too much. And so you end up, if you're not careful, kind of being the Danny Bonaducci or Gary Coleman of religious circles. Anybody remember those names? <laughs> you end up, child stars religiously um, have a lot to face. And I faced my stuff and was at that time, 33, I was facing that my stuff. I wasn't really, I, I took a year off really from going to church. That's why I always encourage people sometime, the best thing you can do for your spiritual journey and even your relationship with church is take time off from it. That year, I spent a lot of time detangling what I thought I believed from what I was supposed to teach, from vocational life and how I made money for my family. I spent a lot of time detangling all of that and was still in the process of detangling that when we began the church. I remember during that time, I've probably told this story before, but during that time, I went to every 12-step group I could find. I was not particularly an addict. I was generally an addict like most people are, but I was not particularly, particularly an addict to any one thing. But I just can say in the 12-step world, I found I found something different enough from church that it could scratch the spiritual itch inside of me in a really profound way. And it was really good to me. They, they literally became, uh, um, that world became a church for me. I remember I was down on Music Row in a Alcoholics Anonymous group. I don't think I'd ever had a glass of wine up to that point, but I loved the way those folks walked in there and ministered to one another. I loved the anonymity and yet how they made anonymity unnecessary by the way they loved and this particular group was a group of crusty old guys that had been on music row for many years it was led facilitated by a guy named paul ritchie 
Little did I know, Paul Ritchie, his brother George Ritchie, was married to Tammy Wynette. A lot of you guys remember the Ritchies around here. They, they, um, big, big parts of uh, the country music establishment. Paul was a songwriter all through the years, like his brother George, who was married to Tammy. But Paul and his brother, and along with their siblings, they grew up in northeast Arkansas, where I grew up, 30 years older than me, 40 years older than me, but they were children of a general Baptist, hard-shell Baptist preacher. And Paul had gotten away from church and through the years had become an alcoholic and now was sober. And when I met him, he'd been sober about 20 years. But he facilitated that old group. Paul was so entrenched in country music, he was Johnny Cash's sponsor when Johnny came back from uh, Betty Ford the first time. And Johnny was a part of that group. But anyway, I just, I, I was enamored by them because a lot of them were old songwriters that I had looked up to, but I was more enamored by what they did in this little 12-step world. And, and I remember they began sensing that I wasn't an alcoholic and they, they, they smelled that out because they, they know, you know, and they, they knew I didn't have the lingo and they, they began suggesting to me that maybe another group would be better for me because they were kind of legalistic about liking, you know, just to be their group. And, and I, I began sensing that they kind of wanted me to move on because I was messing up, you know, the common denominator of the group. And one day, I'll never forget this, um, one of them at the end of the meeting began suggesting nicely maybe ACA or something like that. And I, I realized I was getting booted. And I, I, began, I got kind of teary, and I looked at them, and I said, what if I start drinking? <laughs> I, <and laughs> it's hilarious. I told them, I said, I'm going to start drinking. Then you won't kick me out. I'll never forget it. I can't use his language. But I remember as I, I said that, I looked, and old Paul those of you back in the gym days, you remember, he's the guy that said, he, he was even here before he passed away a, a couple of years. Paul looked at me, I thought he looked at me like he hated me, but he looked and I could tell his jaw was grinding. And then all of a sudden he interrupted the silence, he slammed his fist and he let out a slew of expletives and he said, blankety blank. Ties, we've become the church. And he looked at me and he said, you can stay, son. And he was one of the early members of that church. And we built the church on that foundation. That anybody was welcome. That we were all, to very degrees, broken. And we belonged. And, and so we, we started... I was squarely, to help you understand where we are, you have to look back and know where you've been. I was squarely a 33-year-old young minister who was at the height or depth, as you may describe it, of deconstruction. Drew, I could not have been any more deconstructed theologically than I was. I did not have a cardinal theological premise or truth except that I believed if there was a God, that God didn't mind deconstruction. And that's all I had. And so thrust into leadership of a church 
squarely in the midst of deconstruction, not knowing what I believed, but just in the process of learning what I didn't believe. I started the church. And the church built around two things. Um, how many of you have been here less than one year? Would you raise your hand? Look around. How many have been here less than two years? Raise your hand. How many less than three? Our church at that time, for the first 12 years, no, for the first 10 years, our church built around relationships, and I remember at the end of 10 years, us scratching our head why we never had problems and how nobody ever left. We looked around, we heard about other churches', churches troubles, and we looked around, you guys have been here one, two, three years. Tommy Bell, there was a group that was here 10 or 12 years together, and we were always astonished how we didn't argue, we didn't fuss, nobody ever left. 10 years of that. And the church built around relationships. We, we had a ball. We loved one another. We built deep relationships. Our congregational care really was taken care of through what we call care groups. We had these care groups that were just well-established. They were more than meal groups or life groups. They did meals and they did life together, but they also pastored one another. And when people were in the hospital, it was their care group that took care of them. It was really amazing. Our congregational care just took place from the inside out. And it was a beautiful time. So our church built around relationships and our church built around one other thing. It built around my teaching. And for good or bad, it built around my theological identity. And my theological identity was in the middle of the Bible Belt. A reform that was taking place in my heart was indicative of a reform that was taking place in millions of Christians, Christian hearts everywhere. And I got up every Sunday and I didn't make doctrinal statements. I opened a vein and literally bled with a group of people who felt like they were losing Jesus but didn't want to. And that's what we did for 10 or 12 years. We, we stood in this community where fundamentalism, conservatism, traditionalism abounds and we not only allowed space for people to come with questions saying they didn't know, but we modeled it to such an extent that the very pastor of the community was exactly where those people were. And we didn't try to hide that fact. And I literally testified more than I preached. And as I testified, I developed a style in that so as not to lose my own soul. I was very honest, I was very open, I was very deconstructed. And what I heard over and over and over again was, you just told my story, you put words to what I'm thinking. And that's what I did. And so our church was relationships and teaching. And I could not, I told them when we started the church, I can't be anything other than I am because I've already lost my soul three times doing that in ministry.
so this is what I've got to be. It's as good as it can, it's as good as I can give you. I also knew enough about deconstruction. I knew reconstruction would come and I couldn't wait for it to get there. And when it finally came, I don't know, it kind of crept up on me. But you kind of moved naturally out of deconstruction into reconstruction. But for those first 10 years, our church was a veritable deconstruction zone. And it was lovely. My journey of deconstruction had started, when we started the church, it had started 14 years before. And I want to say this about me, and it's indicative of so many of you. I was 20 years old before I had my first question about faith, anything. But at 20, I began to question the extreme dogma of the United Pentecostal Church that I was a part of. And as I began to deconstruct things like women couldn't cut their hair and kids couldn't play Little League Baseball and families couldn't have a television in their home, very serious holiness issues. As I began to sort through, did I really believe Billy Graham was going to hell? Yes, we believe Billy Graham was going to hell. Those things set me on a journey of deconstruction and here's what happened to me. I left that world and I moved, Barrett, I moved to the next one, which was like Assembly of God, Church of God, a little more open Pentecostal world. I'll never forget when that group welcomed me in, I was so relieved to be home, and then an awful thing happened. I started deconstructing that world too. And then when I left that world and moved on out to the TBN charismatic world where you could wear a little bit more makeup and be a little bit more open and drink a glass of wine if you wanted to, I thought I was finally home, Steve. I lived with that little world a while and guess what happened to me? I started deconstructing. Moved out of that to the evangelical Pentecostal light world and found a guy named L.H. Hardwick and he brought me in. He was 62 years old. He wanted me to be the heir presumptive. He tried to give me a mega church that he spent 50 years building. And I, everything about it, especially within my ego, wanted to take it. They were throwing book deals at me and the church was growing and I was black-headed. <laughs> and I started deconstructing even evangelicalism. Moved out to moderate evangelicalism and suffice to say, until one year ago, my only way of being in relation to faith and church and the Bible and God, my only way of being was deconstruction. And it was honest and it was real and it was hard and it was scary. But until the last year of my life, the deconstruction process has been the primary way that I have related to faith and God and has never, it has always offered me a mission it has never offered me peace. Not the kind of peace that comes when you settle into a faith and actually trust it. I, I have no way of looking back and critiquing that. I look back and say that's what it was for me. Um, I was a deconstructor. My topic at the Wild Goose here in a month, I've got to speak a few times, one of my topics they have requested that I speak on to the pastors there 
is how to lead a church when you're the one changing. And pastors are in pulpits. You guys know this all across America. And they're 42 years old. They got a kid in college. They've got all their vocational equity here. And they're finally starting Stephen to do the soul work they should have done when they were 16 and really question and investigate. But Michael, can you wave your hand back there and say it's true? We deconstruct and yet we have to maintain congregations. My deconstruction, I think, is an important part of the life of the church and I think even my ministry. But a deconstructor and a reformer is a prophetic role. And I just, looking back, think, how in the world was I ever supposed to pull off a prophetic role in a pastoral location? Well, the way we did it, because there's nothing about deconstructing and reforming that generally builds a tight-knit community the way we had it, the only way we did it was coming in, I said, I'm a reformer, I'm deconstructed, I don't know what I believe, but I want to believe, and if y'all can handle that, and a bunch of people gathered around and said, us too. And so it worked. And so many stories in that time, and I'll bring this part to a close and talk about where we are and where we're going quickly, but... Our first minister of music was a dear friend of mine, Michael Popham. And Michael and his wife Lisa had two boys and they were a big part of our church. And he was a wonderful minister of music, an incredibly talented guy that's written tons of the worship songs that churches all over America sing. We grew up together in the old United Pentecostal Church, so I had a long history with him. And he came and he was a wonderful minister of music for a few years. And I remember one day he asked me if I would go to lunch, and I'll never forget, I met him over at Sportsman's Lodge here in Cool Springs. And I sit down with him, and for the next, Carol, Carolyn, for the next 30 minutes, he trembled, and he, he shook, and he was teary, and what he was saying was small talk, so it did not, it was, it was, it just did not, it didn't connect with how trembly and shaky he was. And I finally looked across the table and across our food and said, are you wanting to tell me something? And this minister of music told the story of a million, a million men in churches all across the world. Kenny, he looked at me, big tears. And I'm telling you, this guy, he's one of the finest pastors, one of the finest fathers I've ever known. And he looked at me and he said, I'm gay. And I leaned back and I said, I know. And it's okay. And he looked at me and he said, no, it's not. It never has been and it never will be. This was 2006. Six, five. And I remember my heart opened up, and on that issue, I remember I realized at that point I was settled in. The guy who did that for us, Ron Baldwin, I gave him $800 to go buy paint. Ron Baldwin's an eminent artist. That would cost $100,000 to commission. 
But the reason Ron Baldwin did that was for us was because right after that happened with Michael, I realized that I had been a part of the problem and I got help and I found Ron Baldwin because in 1998 he, a former independent fundamental Baptist pastor with five children and a wife who had graduated from Bob Jones, he came into my office at Christ Church and said, help me, I am gay. And I destroyed him. In the name of God, I destroyed him. I followed my conscience and I destroyed him to a damnable place. And now, after Michael and I's conversation, I realized that I had cleanup to do and I settled that issue. And I went and found Ron Baldwin. We met at Cracker Barrel in 65 and Harden. Harding and I begged him to forgive me and he forgave me he became a part of our church he's not a part of our church now but last week he and I went to Mitchell's delicatessen because I'm still his pastor he just can't come because we're too liberal <laughs> and he's a conservative and I'm not going to tell you who you voted for but he's a gay conservative and he's in no man's land and he loves me and so we went to eat and he said please and I gave him three Brian McLaren books and said let's get back together in a little while and he's a big part of our story here Michael Popham's family began to unravel Lisa his precious wife there was so much those boys it was so much. Michael looked at me a few days later and said, I'll step down. I said, don't do it. Make this church. This, Dale, this was 2005. I said, make this church face this issue. Stand in here. Put a face on this. Ron, you remember, it's exactly the way it happened. And he looked at me and said, I don't want to do that to you. And I said, you're not doing anything to me except doing me a favor because I don't have the guts or the strength to do it right now back us into a corner and make us face this with somebody we love get us out of the abstract and he decided not to do that and we just went back to doing what we did and we moved on from that minister of music and Roger Ryan came and he tickled the ivories and he was profound and great and an incredible minister of music before Melissa but he never got Michael out of my heart Michael went off uh, his marriage ended this incredible dad had a very difficult time with his boys teenage boys and he found the love of his life Josh and they were together nine years and after nine years, as the marriage amendment was passing, I began to get wind that he sent me an invitation to his wedding and I was hurt because he did not ask me to perform it. And I was grateful that he didn't ask me to perform it because this church was in the middle, 2,500 member church with a lot more people was in the middle of a three-year discussion that was dividing homes and families and a congregation over what to do with LGBT people. Right, Antonio? So, 
The conversation moved us from where people like Antonio could sing, and we all knew he was gay, but we couldn't admit it. So the conversation said, we're going to get out of that misery. And people like Antonio were asked to step down and not sing anymore. And people like Mary and Jody, Mary, who leads our leadership council, is assistant superintendent of Clarksville School District with an EDD and her life dedicated to children, a wonderful wife and an incredible mother. But we moved into the discussion and she couldn't teach a Sunday school class here. That's where we were. And y'all wonder why I want to go sell insurance now. So, see, there was a journey. As you move into Canaan, the reminder is there are vineyards here you didn't plant and there are houses here you didn't build. And to live in them well and drink the wine from those vines, you need to understand the story. Before you armchair quarterback and make judgments, you need to understand the story. With all of thy getting, get understanding. And I live with that invitation for one year throughout all of 2014. And I even sent word to him through a mutual friend, why didn't you pick me? And he said the same thing he said to me 10 years before, I don't want to do that to you. Oh, to God that he would have done it to me. So, at the end of 2015, my friend, one of the original board members, Bevan Hawk, called me and he said, Stan, Michael won't call you, but he's two weeks out from his wedding. They've been planning this for a year. Country Music Hall of Fame, I know I was going, and he said, the ministers who were going to do it have backed out because of pressure. And he said, he's not going to ask you, but I thought you'd want to know. And he's going to have to get somebody he doesn't know to do this. And I was sitting there in my front room. And I had a computer in my lap. And I was typing a message about the 8th century prophet Amos. And how Amos was an ally to the marginalized. And my entire message that I was typing was a paper was on what it means to be an ally to the LGBT community and I, the title was A is for Amos and A is for ally. And I was pastoring a church that still couldn't make a decision about whether Mary could teach a Sunday school class and Antonio could sing. Just two years ago. And I looked at that paper as I hung up the phone and I sat there and I finally closed the lid of that computer and looked at myself and said, you hypocrite. And I got on the phone and I called Michael and I said, here, you need a preacher. I didn't do that. I got to tell y'all, as a human being, the journey had so wrung me out. I wasn't thinking about polity. I wasn't, talk I wasn't thinking about talking to elders. I wasn't thinking about talking to other pastors. I wasn't thinking about informing a board. All I was thinking about was I could not lose my soul one more day 
and I had to tell my friend that I could marry him. That's all. I didn't think about Time magazines. I didn't think about NBC coming. I didn't think about all the hoopla. I didn't think about if I'd get fired. I didn't think about anything. All I thought about was I could not tell this man no that I had been telling no for 10 years. And I went and did a wedding and it started a mess and it saved my soul and I have I don't sleep I still don't sleep through the night I I despise being hated I know I'm not just hated because I'm an advocate for the LGBT I'm People say I did it all wrong, and I probably did. I think I was damned if I did and damned if I didn't. Because I certainly would have been damned if I would have told him no. I, I thought I should have just gone to the board and said, I'm out of here. I cannot pastor this church any longer. This church doesn't belong to me. It belongs to y'all and this congregation. And I don't think the majority wants this, so I need to pastor another church. It's yours. That's what they say I should have done, but I want to tell you, if I would have done that, they wouldn't have wanted it. What would they have done with it? They, they would have looked at me and said, no, we don't want it without you. And it would, it, 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 there was just no good way. And we made the statement of inclusion three weeks later. Um, my marriage began to dissolve and I worked the next seven months on adrenaline to try to keep this thing afloat as hard as I could and to keep my two children's nose above water and to keep my own nose above water and around August of 2015 I began to collapse and that is well documented and really good people like Ron and Anna and Melissa and all of y'all in this leadership council pitched in. I didn't quit working. I just didn't work as much. I didn't make too much money. I just worked too little for it. And around October of last year, I realized that I couldn't keep doing this to this church that I had loved and been a part of and believed so much in for 14 years and poured my life into that I was, I was becoming dead weight and I went to this leadership council that's an incredible democratic republic and I went to them, Anglins and different ones, Carol individually and I said I can't do it anymore, I'm shot, I'm fried. I'd, I got to move on for y'all's sake and mine. Life's going to be good. Might even come back to pastoring. I just need a break. And they looked at me and said yes and no. And that was a complex time. But my conversations with them were such that they were strong enough with me that they looked and said, we'll accept that, but are you sure? Have you really done the work on this? Justin Pitt, who's one of my best friends in the world, was like, whatever, I think I might like you better as not a preacher, as a friend, but are you really sure? And enough of those people said that to me that I went and got some help and began doing some work. 
and in January came to the conclusion that I did not want to leave this congregation. And as I began to come out of the stupor and my own heart began to heal and I began to realize I was running, I was not leaving, and I was afraid, I am so sorry that I have not been the pastor the last two years that other people knew me to be for 30. After loss after loss after loss, I could not figure out, I suppose subconsciously, if I wanted to open up my heart to another group of people. And for that I will always be regretful and yet I have to have self-compassion, the same compassion I would give you if you were the one in that circumstance. I get it. You have to take responsibility, but you have to have self-compassion so as not to drown. In January, when I was kind of coming back around, a really beautiful thing happened. Our leadership council did a SWOT survey, and one of the major issues was this church was in a theological crisis. Well, why wouldn't it have been? It had had a senior pastor who was deconstructing for 14 years. We had built an entire movement on deconstruction. And they said, we can't just keep moving nomadically without an identity. You said through the SWAT survey, help us. Who are we? And I thought, you know, perfect. I'm back in the saddle. This is what I do, theology. And as I jumped up to say, this is who we are, I thought, who are you, Stan? Who are you? And I spent some time working through who I was, and I realized that I had satisfyingly come through deconstruction. You'll always be to some degree in deconstruction, but I had satisfyingly come to a place of reconstruction whereas I could with good conscience and no political motive say yeah I'm a Christian I am a progressive Christian I live as far on the coast as you can possibly live and still call it Christian but Monterey is as much America as Des Moines now, Des Moines people don't think that, but it's true. Yeah. And the effort to stabilize this church theologically has brought to a head a complex of variables that has left us theologically stabilized, relationally destabilized, and trying to find our equilibrium with polity and our way forward. And there are no monsters and demons, just a bunch of human beings trying to find our way forward. And I am very excited that in this present moment I look around this room now next Sunday I don't know but this is a good crowd today the forbearance the insight 
the wisdom, the equanimity, the mercy, the grace that this congregation has shown over these last few months is remarkable. That we are here together this morning and we are blessing our past, hoping toward our future, but most importantly are here this morning. With awareness, nobody's blinded to the frailties that exist here. Nobody is blinded to the beauty that exists here. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. We have liquid gold in two-cent Dixie cups. That the excellency and the glory might be of God, not of us. We all know that there is an admixture of human fissure, frailty, foible, and failings mixed with just the glorious divine presence that keeps us all coming back. We are here in the present with awareness and through pride walks and musicless services and standing ovations for those in, in absentia, we are coming to a place in our grieving of acceptance. We have denied, we have bargained, we have angered, we have depressed, but we have lived long enough to know there is no place to go except on through to acceptance with grace. We not only have awareness and we're not only finding acceptance, but we are ready to move into action. We do not want to simply stay in awareness hell and acceptance navel-gazing. I just spent three days with Southern Baptist pastors listening to them argue whether or not they should condemn the alt-right while we were begging them to consider the suicide rates among their gay kids. And in the middle of those pastors I continually met one after another who came to me privately and quietly just like that pastor's wife that I talked about and Drew they looked over their shoulder like the KGB was listening and in a million ways they said to me me too what do I do my heroes Tony Campolo Brian McLaren Rob Bell were reformers before me and they were saying this stuff long before I did and it burned them right out of the pastorate in the local church and they have gone on to become prolific writers and great spiritual leaders and they have not failed but all of them to a man tell me somebody's got to hang in there and pull this off in the local church we can't just abstract about it in books we've got to prove to American pastors who are standing on the threshold of this same conscious decision that it can be done that they can still pay their bills that they can put their kids through college and they won't lose it all because we are chickens just like you behind the stained glass of our collared shirts we are flesh, blood, and galloping neurosis, yet through all that, God reaches people. And, I had a dream. 
because I knew in my gut and how I got picked I don't know but I'm forever grateful because I am not better than I am not smarter than my cousins my siblings my friends in that provincial rural racist Northeast Arkansas town I don't know how but I am grateful I have been a reformer and I know that I've got an ego and I know that I've got insecurities and I know there's a part of me that gets an itch scratched by being on camera and people listening to me I know that and I battle that and I keep it in check as much as I can and all I can do is say that I'm aware of it and I think that's the healthiest I can get but that's not the reason I do this I do this because something in me has always been just like you that's why you're here we have been the kids that have always sat with the stinky kids at the lunch table we couldn't stand it when the stray was left out doing this is complex and it will do damage to your soul along the way but I finally woke up and realized the damage was reparable and I needed to quit being a baby and I needed to be a grown man I needed to pull myself up and realize that even these things are first world problems that I had worked my rear off to be a part of a church like you and I was about to walk away from it and I would have been a fool so I am here wanting to be a part of a congregation that proves to millions of thinking Christians that they don't have to throw their Christianity away. That proves to millions of gay kids that God doesn't think they're defective. And that proves to pastors towing the threshold, desperately looking for courage, that proves to them that if you will step out in faith, Providence will meet you if you will quit letting money and what people think dominate your thoughts and realize that whatever you face on the other side of this decision will pale in comparison to the prison that you've already put yourself in of fear. If you will stand up the way Rosa Parks did and realize as she said, for fear of that damn county jail, I realized that I had put myself in a prison much worse. This congregation, along with Rob's books and Brian's books and Tony's work, Tony started this stuff amongst evangelicals 40 years ago. Tony felt like we did years ago. When that hero of mine, Butch, just a few months ago in his 80s, stepped out and said, my wife Peggy's right, I was wrong. I've been on the fence, I've been doing a three-fifths compromise, I was chicken, I was wrong. He stepped out and he expected, I believe he expected that he would be met with the benefit of all the influence that he had built through the years, but instead, 90% of his speaking engagements were canceled. Tony Campolo and 
my hero has battled since then from his own mouth depression and a sense of my God what are we doing is there any hope but I'm standing here in the present looking to the future saying there is not only hope I didn't know if 30 people were going to show up this morning but when I looked out and saw all of y'all I don't see anybody coming for a you know what show I see a group of people who believe what I'm saying today and we want to move forward so where we're going our future physically our future physically is an interesting one Thursday night's meeting of the council did not go well for our buyer our buyer though when we expected him to call Friday and say I'm out he called and said I figured out a new way and he feels better than ever about it so the contract still looks good and if that contract does go by the way we have some other people that are saying we want a contract too so we have a leadership council that is taking care of the fiduciary fiscal responsibilities really well they're on it like white on rice and in the months and years to come you guys are going to learn if you don't know it these are incredible people and they're working their rear off with nothing except the same vision and heart that I just shared and somebody said what's the future look like well here's the good news this church has come to a theological grounding it is a progressive Christian church that's who we are you have a pastor now that's not in the middle of deconstruction I am really satisfied to be a progressive Christian the spectrum that I put together and we taught earlier in the year that was not teaching before it was testimony that's just I, I'm peaceful I have never been a part of a community that I wasn't trying to change I'm really looking forward to getting on down the road with you and instead of trying to change you trying to change the world with you so we're going to go here in a few weeks we're going to leave this location and I'm going to untangle my heart from all the stories and those of us Tommy who've been here the whole time we're going to untangle our heart and we're going to realize that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands and our future is not going to be dependent upon what our service time is as we move to that place we'll have to figure all of that out because they got the 10 o'clock slot there how long we'll be there they're not even holding those people are so incredible they're not even holding us to a contract of time they say you be here as long as this blesses you and when you want to go you go and we'll bless you those folk at unity church are unbelievable and their pastor there John has really been pastoring me in a lot of ways these last few months he's a remarkable human we're gonna go there and we're gonna be ourselves and we're gonna do what church does we're gonna build relationships we're gonna do our meal groups we might make them a little bit more care groups because we're kinda down 
a few people on staff right now, and we're going to have to learn to take care of ourselves pastorally and one another. But we have a model for that here at Grace Point. We built the church on it. We're going to go and we're going to build relationships. We're going to love one another starting this afternoon out at the picnic. And we're going to take care of our children and have a really strong children's ministry. And I'm going to teach and preach hopefully better than I've ever taught and preached. And the leadership council is going to take care of the incredible responsibilities they have for accountability and to lead this thing physically, financially, fiduciarily, physically. And we're going to get involved in the community more than we ever have because the chief identity of a progressive Christian church is not the abstract of its theology. If we really believe what we believe as progressive Christians, then our chief mission is to reshape the social landscape of our world while all the while reshaping the inner landscape of people's lives. That is the business of the gospel. It is not rocket science, but it is beautiful, good work. And that's where we're going. We have a few more weeks in this building and we need to finish strong here. And I think today is a good day to begin that. So, I'm glad y'all didn't fire me. You could have. I'm glad you didn't. And I'm really, really, really grateful and humbled to be here. And I'm really excited about what the future looks like for Grace Point Church. Can you say amen? amen. So, we're not going to take an offering, but we're going to receive one. Y'all keep standing. Let's stand. Let's get out of here. <clears throat> Financially, you got to know that this is a tough time. And we just need to finish strong here and move strong into the next, into the next chapter of our ministry. For 10 years here, we never took an offering. We had offering boxes at the door. And somehow it worked out great and people loved that. And then, and then, is that camera on? Is the camera on? Yeah, good. And then our congregation demographically shifted. And we could not depend upon a few people just carrying the load. And you guys have stepped up. It's amazing, this congregation is half the size it was before I married Michael and Josh. And it has about 30% more giving units. And I think that's lovely. And I commend you. And so today, as an homage to our past, instead of putting it in offering plates, would you please give liberally and faithfully and do something we used to do for many years, put it in the box, okay? I love you very, very much, 
And I can't wait to tell you more about Joseph and forgiveness next week. God bless you. Be good to one another.